0: My mother uh, taught me there's a time and place for everything when she said, if you're going to kill each other, do it outside. I just finished cleaning the house. (laughs) My mother taught me religion when she said, you'd better pray that stuff you spilled comes out of the carpet. (laughs) She taught me the logic when she said, because I said so, that's why. Mm -hmm. My mother taught me foresight when she said, make sure you wear clean underwear. You never know when you might be in an accident, be taken to the hospital. My mother taught me control. She said, keep laughing, I'll give you something to cry about. (laughs) My mother taught me about the science of osmosis when she said, shut your mouth and eat your dinner. (laughs) My mother taught me about being a contortionist when she said, look at the back of your neck, it's filthy. (laughs) My mother taught me about the weather when she said, your room looks like it was hit by a tornado. Yeah. My mother taught me about straight talk when she said, if I told you once, I told you a million times, don't exaggerate. (laughs) My mother taught me self-control when she said, don't go near the cake. I made it for my bridge club or the youth group in this case. Yeah. My mother taught me about behavior modification when she said, please stop acting like your father. On a more serious note, my mother taught me it's more impressive when others discover your good qualities without your help. And my mother taught me the quickest way to double your money is to fold it in half and put it back in your pocket. My mother taught me that some days you're the bug, and other days you're the wind, windshield. Yeah. My mother taught me never to test the depth of water with both of my feet. And my mother taught me if you always tell the truth, you won't have to remember what you said and to whom. Yeah won't have to be a good liar. Well, a woman's influence is a great thing, and a mom's presence in our lives is something for which we are deeply grateful. Three women in the Bible that I want to reference this morning, just briefly, as we launch into this uh, simple little message on a woman's influence. The first is from Miriam, who was the sister of Moses. She sang of the Lord's triumph after his rescue of the nation of Israel from Pharaoh's clutching hands, and she led the whole nation in worship, exhorting the people to, and it says in Exodus 15, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And so this wonderful influence toward the worship of God. Deborah was a judge in Israel, and after a great victory, led the nation in worship and song. As reported in Judges 5.3, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then finally, another reference. Mary, the mother of Jesus, offered these words of wonderment and praise. It is called the Magnificat. It occurs in Luke chapter 1 and verse 47. Reports, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, we thank you this morning for moms, for women, for the influence that they have in our lives. We pray today that as we think about influence, that you will speak to all of us, deep within us. Speak to us. But especially, I pray that you would speak to girls and to women within the sound of my voice today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In your outline, you'll see uh, there's a few uh, fill-in-the-blanks there. I just want to talk about a woman's influence briefly this morning. The first is to influence toward the worship of God. We see this displayed in these three examples in the scripture where women were very powerful in their influence toward God. I remember years ago when I was in India, I was in the city of Bombay, now known as Mumbai, and I'd studied some Hinduism before uh, my journey, and of course in grad school I picked up a little bit about this, but I was unprepared really for the level of idolatry that exists in that culture, the, the, the garish, ghoulish, demonic nature of these statues which proliferate on the streets of India, in fact on every street corner, every city, plaza, every town there are these monstrous statues of pagan gods and it's so bizarre and I think demonic that the people of India will actually worship just about anything that's not moving and you may push back and say well wait a minute that's their culture and that's their religion and that's what they're used to and there are millions and millions of people in the world who are adherents of the religion of Hinduism and, and it's just part of their culture and as a Christian person if you attempt to proselytize or convert Hindus you're just being parochial or paternalistic and it's just the wrong thing to do and I, and I understand the pushback on that but let me tell you when all of that changed for me it changed for me when I was in India one morning when I was uh, on a street all the streets there are busy. This one was particularly busy. And a little girl, probably seven or eight years old, darted past me carrying a perfectly good plate of fruit, beautiful tray of fruit. She went right past me across a busy street and over to this little idol, which was just on the side of a building next to the corner, about a foot off the sidewalk And this idol was in a little niche there in the side of the wall. It was an ugly little thing, about three feet tall. And she runs over there, and underneath this idol is rotting fruit. There are flies and stench all around this fruit. And this little girl, who is ruddy-faced, dirt on her face, emaciated, rags for a dress, obviously malnourished herself, with a perfectly good tray of fruit walks over and places this tray of fruit at the feet of this idol offers a little prayer and then darts away and that's when it all firmed up for me that's when I rejected the philosophy of universalism as something that I might embrace universalism is the notion that everyone's going to end up in heaven doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in your belief uh, it'll all work out in the end and that's a happy religion, it's an easy philosophy to embrace in life, uh, but all that changed for me in that moment, because when I saw that little girl leave that perfectly good fruit at the feet of that idol, I realized something's not right. What is wrong with this picture? Well, there's everything wrong with that picture. And so I determined at that point never to apologize to anyone for offering the good news of hope that is found through God's gift to us in his person of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, it doesn't really matter what your religion is or what your world philosophy is. It doesn't really matter. The most important thing that you can realize is that Almighty God actually wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you personally and have a relationship, a friendship with you. And he's made that relationship possible by the extreme expense of giving his very own son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and was raised the third day in order to provide a connection with us. And by acknowledging this wonderful gift of hope and forgiveness that God provides through His Son, we have this relationship restored and made possible. And so I'm not apologetic anymore about influencing people toward the worship of the true God because that's what we're called to. In fact, that's the mandate that we're given. That's the great commission that Jesus offered to us his disciples and said, go and share this wonderful good news with everyone so could I just encourage all of us to influence toward the worship of God now here's a second idea and that is especially uh, thinking about women and mothers now influence toward the zeal of God the zeal of God this is when the influence of a wife or mother encourages zeal for God in the household now let me give you an example for example your husband goes off he goes to a men's conference and a men's retreat, and he gets all spiritually charged up. I mean, he he encounters God's presence and the Holy Spirit, and he comes home, and he's all lit up for God. He wants to go for God. Or your child goes on a retreat or comes to 180, and, and they get influenced by the presence of God, and they come home, and they're all charged up for Jesus, and they want to run fast for Him. Now listen, Mom, listen to me carefully. If you try to put the brakes on or plead for moderation with your husband or your child you will miss God's best. You will be in error. This will be a mistake. Don't exert resistance on your husband or children calling for spiritual moderation when they're first trying to run for God. Let them run. Can I encourage you? If you see a little flame for God in your husband or your children, fan that thing. Encourage that thing. Uh, Open your heart and your mind to that thing and let them run. Let them run as fast as they want to run, as fast as they can because here 's what will happen: the world, the flesh, and the devil will eventually and inevitably cool their jets. I mean life happens, and it will, it will tend to moderate any kind of spiritual vitality that happens in any of our lives that 's why jesus, jesus said you 've got to keep oil in your lamps, you know keep it burning i mean you 've got to keep re- replenishing your spiritual vitality because it tends by reason of use, by reason of the forces in life, tend to, to expend it and so you need to encourage people who, who are under your influence, who have a heart for God and a zeal for God. Encourage them to run. My, my parents tried to slow me down. I came to a meaningful faith in Christ when I was 16 years old, and I got the bit in my mouth, and it wasn't long until I was at a full gallop. And my mother and my, my dad, they tried to pull the reins back on me because I was going. And in my case, I was not easily dissuaded and it was too late to grab the reins on, on the horse that I was on. So they tried, but, and I wasn't easily dis- dissuaded, but there are people who are easily dissuaded, and it's just a bad idea to discourage and dissuade your husband or your children from running hard for God. Years ago, we had some special meetings on a Friday night here on several weeks, and we had these renewal meetings, and God's Spirit was moving in our church, and We invited the whole community to come, and lots of people were coming every Friday night. The Spirit of God was blessing people. It was great. And our son, Aaron, our oldest son, was a teenager at the time, and he got in the prayer line one Friday night, and and someone prayed for him, and he came so much under the influence of the Spirit of God, he actually ended up on the floor. I mean, he's just kind of laid out on the carpet and kind of soaking in God's presence, and he laid there for, for almost an hour one Friday night. The service is going on. He's just laying on the floor. It's kind of odd, but there he was. We got home that night, and Beth, being maternalistic in her instinct, and she wants to nurture and care and make sure everybody's safe and everybody's well. She said to me, "Should we say something to Aaron about that? I mean, is he going to be okay? I mean, we don't know what's going on in his life. This is kind of odd behavior." And I said, "Listen, don't we we'll, we not say a word to him? Don't because if we question what God is doing." Let him work out what God is doing in his own life. As long as his heart is good, we know it is, God will see him through to a good place, to a balanced place, a healthy place. In the meantime, if he wants to do something that's a little on the fringe or on the margins in his own spirituality, just let him go. Let him do whatever it's going to do. God will take care of him. And we were wise just to take our hands off of that and indeed to encourage him in his relationship with God. It matters that way. So if, if, uh, if your husband comes home and says, Look, I'm, I've found God. I'm sober. I'm delivered. I'm healed. Then what you say is, Great, baby. Uh, I'm with you. Let's live for God. Let's do it. Let's go for it. Teenagers who, who really get the power of God, listen, they really get wild. And just let me remind you, teenagers are going to be wild about something. I mean, they are going to be wild about something. Here's a fact. Adolescence is temporary insanity. That's true in every young person's life. So they're going to be crazy about something. And if they want to be crazy for Jesus, you encourage that. Encourage that. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's astonishing to me how many parents resist their children's zeal for God. I don't know if it's fear or jealousy or just... Not, spiritual immaturity, I'm not sure what it is, but if your kids come home and they, they want to be part of an early morning prayer meeting at school and they need a ride to school, then listen, you get up and you take them at 6.30 to school so they can engage their prayer meeting. If they, if they want to go on a mission trip or be part of some special retreat with 180 or that sort of thing, then you encourage that. You pay for, how, much, how much is that short-term trip going to cost this summer? Oh, it's $3,800. You look at them and say, well, let's sit down and figure out a way to raise $3,800 because I'm all in with you. If you want to go for God, I want you to go. Let me ask you this. Do you know how many parents there are who would give their right arm if their child wanted to go to any worship service anywhere? And your kids become zealous for God? Don't discourage it. Encourage it. You, You get it, right? Encourage that. And if you've made mistakes in this arena in the past, then you correct your ways. And you, any time you see a little spark from your kids, you blow on that thing and fan that to flame and encourage them. Just let them go as hard and as fast for God as they can. You won't regret it. Amen? All right. now It gets really quiet, and quiet in the room when I've been offering that, that point all weekend. Here's a third idea. Influence away from materialism. What wonderful influence a woman has in the home when she encourages away from egotism and pride and materialism. What incredible influence. You know, your husband comes home and says, you know, baby, I, I just feel bad you're still driving that old car and I've wanted to buy you a new car or get you some new jewelry because I know you like that. But, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, but we just can't afford that right now. Listen, what you say in that moment is, what new car? I don't, need, I don't need fancy jewelry. I've got you, and I've got God, and we've got each other. That's all I need. I don't need anything else in order to be happy or content. She has an influence in a moment like that away from the pride of life, away from egotism that sometimes envelops people based on their stuff and how the quality of their stuff and the quantity of their stuff, away from materialism. You should know that one of the great influences in my life personally t- uh, toward God and away from materialism is my wife, Beth. We've been married for 37 years, and I can tell you this with complete honesty. My wife has never, hear that, my wife has never badgered me for a purchase of any kind. Not once. I know that may sound impossible to believe, but it's true. I talk to some guys whose wives go to the mall with the credit cards, and they live in fear till she returns. I have one guy whose credit cards were stolen, I asked him if he'd called it in, reported and he said, heck no, he said, so far the guy who stole them is spending a whole lot less than my wife was. (laughs) My wife, Beth, lives frugally. She never asks for more. She never demands more. She never has asked about a car or about clothes or about jewelry or about a house. And I'm fortunate because she influences me away from egotism and pride and those things and materialism. It's really helpful. I read a piece recently on the, on the life of Benedict Arnold. Some of you recognize that name as, uh, as the turncoat of the Revolutionary period. And in this piece, it suggested that he was one of the most brilliant and capable generals in the entire Revolutionary War. And it was suggested that he might even become the first president instead of George Washington. He was that capable. But when he wasn't chosen as the first president, his wife couldn't accept it. And she constantly badgered him to produce more, to achieve more, to be more. And apparently, it it was part of her psychology to actually say to her husband, Benedict Arnold, why can't you be more like George Washington? How would you like to live with that every day? And... He heard this constantly until finally the betrayal came in New York when he sold out the Revolutionary Army, engaged in treachery with the British. Many people believed it was simply because he was a broken and demoralized man who had been influenced for evil by a wife who was materialistic and egotistical. Wow, nobody needs that. You'll remember in the New Testament that Herod, who was the Roman governor of Palestine at the time of Jesus and John the Baptist, that Herod actually murdered John the Baptist. Remember that sequence of events? He did it against his will because he was a coward, and he was gutless, and he was weak. You'll remember the story that Herod was actually living with his brother's wife in an adulterous relationship. Her name was Herodias. And John Baptist, the precursor prophet of Jesus, would actually stand at the foot of the temple with Herod and his live-in uh, sister-in-law, as it, was, as it were, and he would rail against it. John Baptist in prophetic form, Old Testament prophetic form, would say, this is wrong, and God's going to judge you for shacking up with your brother's wife. Well, Herod apparently respected John Baptist. He actually feared John Baptist, thinking he was a prophet. He was from God, but Herodias, she didn't care for John Baptist at all. In fact, she, she hated John Baptist for uh, holding her accountable in this way. There's a little sub-lesson in all that, which is hell hath no fury like a woman convicted by a good sermon. Now, I, have, I can share this with you from personal experience. Uh, if, a, if you preach a, a good sermon and a, and a man gets upset by that sermon, that's one thing. But you preach a good sermon and a woman gets upset by that, listen, she'll have your head. She'll get after you about that. And so she decided she'd get John Baptist at the first opportunity. So Herod eventually arrested John Baptist but was afraid to do anything with him because he actually respected and feared John Baptist as a prophet of God. So Herodias uses her daughter to inflame the lust of Herod. So when he's drunk and full of passion, she dances seductively one night before him and he says to her, I'm going to give you anything you want up to half of the kingdom. And so Herodias' daughter goes to her and says, Mom, what should I ask uh, since, he's been pro- since it's been promised, and she said, tell him that you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And, and Herod had to follow through on that because he had made the promise in public, and so now he's trapped by her appeal based on his materialism and lust and ego and pride that she had been influencing him with all along. This is the essence of immoral influence. This is evil influence. Now listen, you want to go away from that. You can always tell what kind of influence you are making on another person by where you are asserting that influence. Now if you're appealing to a person's lower, baser instincts of lust and pride and greed and materialism and envy, then you know that you're influencing them in a poor way. You don't want to do that. But if you're, you're appealing to them and influencing them to their higher instincts, of love, and joy, and forgiveness, and character, and servanthood, that's a good thing. You can always interpret influences in your life by where that influence is touching you. If the person influencing you touches you at a place of your lower instinct, and someone says, well, you ought to have more than you have, you know, you've got extra money, you ought to buy whatever you want, or, or, or those, those people appealing to your lust, or your pride, or your ego, or materialistic tendency, yeah, you don't need that in your life. But if, but if someone's speaking to you saying, you know, really, you need to forgive that person or you need to have joy in the midst of that pain and you don't have to need more stuff in order to be content, these are the kind of influences that tend toward godliness and is the influence that God calls us to give to each other. Here's the last uh, point, number four. And that is influence and godliness. Influence and godliness. A- asserting positive influence is more than determining to be a good person. As I told these parents, guardians earlier, with these uh, these these precious babies, and weren't they beautiful? <laughs> just beautiful kids. As I was saying to them, look, it takes more than good intentions with regard to influence in another person's life. You have to you have to be determined to be more than just a good person. You have to you have to think about ways that you can influence through through the the, the quality of your personhood the depth of your character in godliness. So that you want to you organize your life so that you're actually growing day by day into the image of Jesus so that your character and the persona that you, that you project influences people in a godly way. I mean, that's what you want. For, let me give you an example. John and Charles Wesley are the father founders of the Methodist movement 200 years ago. John's the father of Methodism. Charles His brother wrote 7,000 hymns, brilliant theologian. They were raised by a woman, their mother's name was Susanna Wesley. She raised 11 kids, homeschooled them all, they were all stellar, they all learned multiple languages, she was a scholar herself, just a phenomenal influence. And now here, 250 years after the Wesleys lived on the earth. We have the influence of their lives. 30 million Methodists in the world today. It's an incredible story of a woman's influence. We point directly to Susanna Wesley for all of that. Let me give you another example. Martin Luther of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther always talked, always wrote about his wife's prayer life and how influential she was in his life, once when Luther was being questioned by the Inquis- Inquisition at the threat of his life, he said that he felt demons swirling about his head and left him confused and dazed and unable to articulate what he was trying to say to the Inquisition. And he said, "But suddenly a peace came upon him, giving him calm and courage." He said, and he wrote this later. He said, Quote, "Instantly, I knew my wife was home praying for me." Isn't that beautiful? It's just so powerful. The influence of a godly woman. Some of you know the name Catherine Booth. She may top top them all in terms of influence she had on her husband William, who was a Methodist preacher and the founder of the Salvation Army. Catherine Booth was able to exert so much positive influence on her husband William because she was so self-sacrificing, never held back, never complained. And as you may recall, she And her husband, William, started the Salvation Army in the pitiful conditions of the slums of London around the turn of the last century and in horrible personal conditions. Her health was was weakened by it, and yet she was always giving support and encouragement and strength, never wavering with her husband. She was in every way uh, a great leader and influencer and to this day. Some of the things we learned from Catherine and these other women are these. Number one, adopt an attitude of giving self sacrifice. I put this on your outline, you don't have to write it down. Giving self sacrifice. Can you hear that phrase? Giving self sacrifice. If you're manipulative and poor in your motives, then your influence will be corrupted. But if you're concerned only with the plan and work of God in another person's life, you want their best interests, have that in mind, then your influence will take root and be positive, and it will last. Let me give you this example with Catherine and William Booth. Finally, the great crisis came between William Booth and the Methodist Church. You may not know this about the history of the Salvation Army, but William was a Methodist preacher, and the Methodist bishop at the time in the London area did not want William Booth starting this ministry called the Salvation Army. And he put a lot of pressure on William to conform to the standard and what finally happened was the crisis came to a head at the, on the floor of the annual conference. Hundreds of people assembled with, with people in the balcony uh, observing the activities of the annual conference. And during that conference, William Booth sitting on the floor with hundreds of his peers, and the bishop from the front of this conference said, and I quote, to William, in front of everyone, will you resign yourself to no longer carry forward this idea of the Salvation Army? Will you cease this ministry in the slums of London and will you pastor the church to which I send you? And there was a long pause as William, thinking about his wife and her poor health and his children and their pitiful finances and all the challenges of this inner city ministry, he hesitated. And so he felt the pressure and he felt you know hundreds of eyes on his and the forcefulness of the bishop in that moment. Will you conform and will you finally surrender this whole idea of the Salvation Army? And he was about to crack under that level of pressure and suddenly then from the balcony a female voice rang out and it was his wife Catherine and she said William don't you dare (laughs) how great is that that's just great they got up left and the Salvation Army was born on the floor of the annual conference of the Methodist Church aren't you glad the Salvation Army is still here aren't they a great witness for Christ wonderful (laughs) One of, one of my earliest memories is hearing the story of Amy Carmichael. I heard about Amy's life in a biography that, that my vacation Bible school teacher read to us during the, during the mid-morning break, during a week in summer. You know, here we are in the sultry summer, and it was cookie and cookies and Kool-Aid time, you know, at vacation Bible school, and I was just a squirt. And, and our college-age leader was reading from this biography by Amy Carmichael, and it was spellbounding. I still remember it poignantly. And I sat there as this teacher of ours told of Amy's longing for blue eyes as a child. Isn't that interesting? Instead of the plain old brown eyes that God had given her. And this was kind of a common theme as she grew up. She longed to have blue eyes, but God had given her plain old brown eyes. Well, in her adult years, Amy Carmichael became a missionary. And as the days unfolded during that week of vacation Bible school, we heard the rest of the story. Her eye color became a blessing because she would often dye her skin with coffee and she dressed in Indian clothes to save little girls from a life of temple prostitution in India. And her brown eyes came in really handy because if she had had blue eyes, they would have undermined her covert rescue attempts to save these countless young children from a life of despair. I'm back to this whole idea of giving self-sacrifice. Isn't that a beautiful story? I just love those, those kinds of stories of the influence that women have had. Here's a second, just brief point, and that is an attitude of love and appreciation. To adopt an attitude of love and appreciation. In other words, you influence most when you don't demand, and you go giving and you go serving. Uh, actually, the way to, to anyone's heart is through giving and selflessness, I'm about to say something that is, is, that is sexist in the extreme. Horrible, sexist comments. So if you are offended by this in any way, I stand ready to receive your ventilation, your wrath at the end of the service today. And then after you ventilate, if you will go home and do what I tell you to do in just a moment, it will help. Okay? Now, I understand this is, I don't, this is over the line. It's way over the line. But this is, a, this is as poignant an example as I can come up with around this subject of love and appreciation. And this is specifically directed to wives who are married to husbands who have not yet come to a meaningful faith in Christ. There are many women in our culture, many women in our church who do this Christian thing alone without their husband's support. They're just not there yet. They have yet to realize faith in Christ. There is a great power in adopting an attitude of love and appreciation. The instinct over time is for a woman to become angry and maybe even embittered toward their husband with regard to their spirituality. And what I'm suggesting to you is that there is great influence that can be brought to bear if you will be loving and grateful. And with particular reference, here is something you can do that I guarantee you will work. And that is in the context of your sex life. I know, here we go. Now watch. A Christian wife can exert tremendous influence in a husband's life if she will give herself in this way. Here's what I would recommend you do. If you will meet your husband at the door at the end of a workday, all dressed up, all made up, throw yourself in his arms, hug him around the neck, kiss his face into the early evening, have a beautiful evening together, And you do that the first night, and then you do it the second night. You do it the third night. You go a week. You may go a week and a half. At the end of that time, at some point, your husband, if he can still talk, (laughs) this is what he will say. And I quote, What in the world has gotten into you? What in the world? has gotten into you, it is at that point, then and only then, you make this statement. If you say it before, you will lose the effect. But if you wait until he makes that statement, what in the world has gotten into you? Because he'll say it just as If he can still talk, he will say it. When he says that, that's when you say, honey, since Jesus came into my life, I realize what a wonderful man you are. Before God really became important to me, I didn't see it. But since the Holy Spirit began moving in my, my life, I realized how great you are and how wonderful you are and how happy I am to have you as a husband. You know what he's going to say? He's going to say, what church you say you've been going to? When do, when do they have services there? Hmm? See, he will sense that his wife is approaching him with influence for god and good and having given and sacrificed herself and having met him at the point of his need enormous influence can be exacted this way i know last uh, little thought adopt an ad- attitude of a godly heart the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart let me just say this. let me just say this to young girls listen to me teenage girls adolescent girls listen to me carefully listen to old pastor gray If you devote yourself to Christ-likeness, to purity of heart and purity of life, you will begin to exude and project the holiness of God. That will happen. It may affect the way you dress. It may affect the way you carry yourself. But that's not the main thing. The most important thing is if you will develop an attitude of Christ-likeness, a godly heart, that will begin to emanate out of who you are as a person. And there are some girls, we know them, we know them in our church, we know them in our community, there, there are girls like this who are so close to Jesus, now watch this, so close to Jesus that boys know instinctively not to reach for them in a selfish way. There are young women like this that, that boys and young men simply know instinctively, they know intuitively, they get it, that's not someone that I approach with selfish motives. She is reserved. She belongs to God and whoever God has chosen for her. I'm talking about the influence of a woman. This can happen for women as well. In offices where you work, where there can be vile language or crude gesturing, your presence can make a difference. Your spirit, your attitudes can actually adjust the practices in that office. You know, the, that, that, uh, that flirtation, that innuendo, that suggestion, and sometimes it, it actually just carries over into crudeness and inappropriate talk. When she is present, if she develops a godly heart, when she is present, listen, those off-color stories won't be told not because she's judgmental, not because she's critical, not because she scolds people or jabs at people for, you know, kind of crossing the line, but because she influences through her character and the presence of Christ in her life. Her radiant personality, her her servant spirit will emanate from her life, and everybody will know this is a different environment. All those things are off-limits. There are so many beautiful and wonderful women that we know in association with our church. Our own mothers, in many cases, have been these models, these examples of unconditional love, of a servant spirit, of tireless care. And for all of these reasons, today we say thanks. We admire you. We're grateful to you. We recognize the influence that you've had in our lives and continue to have in our lives. And so for all of these ways, we say thank you. And happy Mother's Day. And as Pastor Chris said so sensitively earlier, for all you want to be mothers, yet to be mothers, we admire your, your heart and your desire. And we trust that God will order your steps and bless your lives according to his will. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's just pray for just a moment. Lord, we thank you for women and mothers who have influenced So many of us toward authentic worship and toward a zeal for God and away from pride and away from egotism and away from materialism, away from worldly ideas, and instead exudes this persona of godliness through self sacrifice and love and appreciation, a godly heart. These women who literally change the world, their environment, through the quality of their heart and their godliness. So we thank you for these wonderful people who influence so beautifully. We celebrate then on this Mother's Day, oh God, these gifts in Jesus' name. in the. People.